think about the way the world is and the way that the world could be. All of our systems are interrelated and interdependent. There's a thousand different voices that nobody hears. We're looking at a human being, and there's a life story. 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 Connection to the people we don't know that live near us. An Elevated Denver starts now. Welcome to this special episode of the Elevated Denver podcast. Before we wrap season two, we wanted to take the opportunity to sit down with Don Burns and Kevin Adler to discuss their new book, When We Walk By, a thorough analysis of America's homelessness crisis and a rigorously researched solutions-based guide to ending it. Kevin Adler is an award-winning social entrepreneur, nonprofit leader, and author. Since 2014, he's served as the founder and CEO of Miracle Messages, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people experiencing homelessness, rebuild their social support systems, and financial security, primarily through family reunification services, a phone buddy program, and direct cash transfers, including one of the first basic income pilots for unhoused individuals in the U.S. Don Burns and his wife, Lynn, are the co-founders of the Burns Institute for Poverty Research at the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. A local philanthropist concerned with the issues of homelessness and housing, Don has been an executive director for various nonprofits a historian, researcher, and educational policy consultant for the U.S. Congress around issues of homelessness and poverty for over 35 years. By weaving together intimate stories of individuals' journeys of homelessness, Kevin and Don help readers understand the true experience of homelessness. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. appreciate being here. To start, why don't you tell us and the listeners why it was important to write this book? This book really is, for me, the culmination of the last decade, and I know for Don, for multiple decades of work on this issue and in this space. I feel having led a nonprofit that helps our unhoused neighbors rebuild their social support systems and financial security, I've felt that the stories that I've heard over the last decade have transformed my heart on this issue. I, I can no more see a person experiencing homelessness as a problem to be solved rather than as a person to be loved. When I started this journey, I approached Don and in his graciousness and you know his, his kindness, he, he offered to join me on a journey that I think both of us are really excited about as creating now one of the first trade books on this issue of homelessness. I would add to what Kevin has said that there are a lot of books about homelessness. Most of them focus on what is often called the policy and economic perspective of the issue. Very few people talk about the human aspect of homelessness. And so for me, it's been a revelation to have a chance to talk about 
the humanity in this issue and the degree to which people experiencing homelessness lack the kind of networks of support they need. And we who are in housing have such a negative relationship with those experiencing homelessness. That has got to change. You approach the content in the book from a policy and economic perspective, but also importantly, from a human perspective. And in particular, you dig into the relational factors that contribute to homelessness. So why is that piece really important? One of the lenses that we use in writing this book is around this idea of relational poverty. And relational poverty is is a form of poverty. Think of isolation, loneliness, disconnectedness, and often a stigma and shame that makes it very hard to then form nurturing relationships. I think this is an important issue because it's often overlooked. When we think about homelessness, we think about the lack of housing, which is fundamentally part of the experience, but we don't necessarily think about what else may accompany it. And I I would argue that isolation, loneliness, disconnectedness, and a stigma and shame are perhaps the most common attribute of homelessness, aside from a lack of stable housing. And when we think about how relationships in our own lives as housed people can get us through the day, get us through rough times, when we need someone to talk to, when we are between jobs, when we are going through a tough time, when we're leaving an unhealthy relationship, we turn to our community, we turn to our relationship social capital. And so for our neighbors experiencing homelessness who either don't have that or have lost that, or where the support and the relationships that they had may not have had the economic resources and and other resources to withstand the challenges they're facing, it can be that much harder for those individuals to get off the streets, even if they get housing. You know, right now in the United States, We have one out of every two Americans who are paycheck away from not being able to pay rent. 47% of people saying they don't know where they get $400 for an unexpected emergency. And so at some point, you almost have to ask a question, given those harrowing stats, one out of two Americans a paycheck away from not paying rent, why aren't tens of millions of people homeless? Why, Why aren't there more people experiencing homelessness? And I think what we're finding is family, friends, community, church, synagogue, mosque, informal economy, social capital relationships, doubling up, tripling up, having someone there to get by. That's making up the difference right now for half of the country. And so I think centering this, it's not a silver bullet, but I think we have to look in the mirror on this issue. It's not just about homelessness. It's about us as housed people and our relationships or lack thereof with our unhoused neighbors. I love that, Kevin. And I wonder, Don, if you could just extrapolate a little bit more that linkage between relational poverty and financial poverty. Well, as I have written before, one of the most universal characteristics of people experiencing homelessness is social isolation. And another way of describing it is a lack of social capital. There's a great quote in our book, I never realized I was homeless when I lost my housing, only when I lost my family and friends. People ask me, so who do you call at two o'clock in the morning if you have a crisis? 
Well, we all have people we can call. By and large, people experiencing homelessness don't have those people. And so without those kinds of resources, people are in desperate shape financially for all kinds of reasons. And so it is critically important that we recognize that. Yeah, really appreciate that. And as you know, that's one of our aims too through our work is to really shed light on how interconnected we all are and how critical those relationships between housed and unhoused and really everybody, how important those relationships are. Let's turn to some of the economic components of homelessness for a second. In your book, you write that there's a deficiency of 7 million affordable housing units in the U.S., So given that, what are some feasible alternatives? What do we do with that? This is one of the parts of the book that I feel very strongly about. There is the National Low-Income Housing Coalition has what they call the housing wage. The housing wage is basically what you have to earn on an hourly basis to afford an average two-bedroom housing unit without spending more than 30% of your income. There is no state in the country where the minimum wage equals the housing wage. And there are only 1% of all the counties in the country where the minimum wage will provide a housing wage for a one bedroom housing unit. So the cost of housing is astronomical and it's getting worse. We have to figure out How do we reduce the cost of construction? We have to increase the availability of tax credits so that developers will end up providing more in the way of low-cost housing. Certainly, zoning and land use regulations have to change. Most of the cities in this country have regulations that say that up to 80% of the land in their jurisdictions can only be used for single-family dwellings. How do you build multifamily dwellings if there's no space to do it? We've got to change those kinds of regulations. Tax credits are critically important. One of the problems with tax credits is they end in 20 to 30 years. We have to extend the life of tax credits and we have to create more housing vouchers. So there are all kinds of issues that we have to think about in terms of changing the systems for providing housing for folks experiencing homelessness. So just pulling that thread for a minute and expanding to other systems, I would love for you all to talk to us about why it's important for us to really understand how housing insecurity intersects with all of these other systems. And you bring up foster care system, criminal justice system, and also systems of oppression like racism and homophobia. So maybe you could talk to us about that intersectionality and why that's a really critical component of understanding how we address this issue. What jumps out to me is a system that sometimes doesn't get talked about a lot on this issue of homelessness that I want to just bring forward in the conversation is the intersection between homelessness and foster care. So in the United States right now, one out of every three children, young people who age out of foster care 
by the time they're 26 years old, will experience homelessness. And that number, you know, over one third, skyrockets up to 60% when we talk about Black young people who age out of the foster care system. Three out of five will experience homelessness by the time they're 26 years old. And I think what's significant about that, and, and it really intersects with our work and conversation around relational poverty, is I've had a conversation before with a leader in the foster care space where I said, what's the biggest determinant on whether a young person goes through the foster care system and manages to get out and thrive and, and avoid experiencing homelessness versus someone who doesn't? And he said, does that child have someone who goes to bed at night and wakes up in the morning thinking of their well-being, who isn't paid to do so. And I'm like, well, at what point do we age out of the need to feel loved, to feel like we're someone, somebody? And, and so I think it's important. I mean, it, it can feel very overwhelming. If you start with the systems chapters of this book, which come in section two on housing, income inequality, foster care, criminal justice system, healthcare, mental health, racism, discrimination, immigration, it can feel overwhelming. These are systems that we have to address as a nation. But I think if we start with the humanity aspects and think about how we treat people, do we know our neighbors experiencing homelessness as neighbors, as problems to be solved or as people to be loved? Are we perpetuating harmful stigmas around this idea of, well, if there's a self-made man and woman in our society, self-made person, does that mean if someone's poor or someone's unhoused, are they self-failed as an individual? I think we have to really dig deep into understanding how we're seeing our neighbors experiencing homelessness and whether we're in relationship or not. And my hope is by doing that work and getting what Brian Stevenson from Equal Justice Initiative talks about of getting proximate getting, I would say, getting relational. I think that will be the only thing I can think of that I know has worked in my life for people, a groundswell of people to say, this is unacceptable. We need to fight and advocate for the systems changes that are required. Not because it's this abstract thing, but because these are our moms and dads, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. And so that's the bridge that we're really trying to cross, I think, through this work. So what do we do? What do we do when we see an unhoused neighbor as we're driving by or walking down the street? How do we begin to build those relationships and cultivate more of that compassion as we walk through? You know, this book, it's the title is was very intentionally chosen. So it's when we walk by, right? So it's 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 all of us. It, it's and it's a book about us as housed people as much as it is a book about our unhoused neighbors. I think what we're asking and inviting folks to do is to really consider what's going on when you walk by. Do you walk by? Are you busy? Are you going to work? Are you, you know, have a meeting? Or are you disengaging because of perhaps fear or stigma? Is there judgment that's coming up? So I came up with a fun little, you know, acronym to think of. So three letters. So first letter is I. It stands for imagine taking some time to imagine the person who's experiencing homelessness, whether it's on your walk or thinking about the people who you don't see who are experiencing homelessness, which is actually the larger majority of folks look just like you and me, blend in, trying to do everything they possibly can to not be seen as a person experiencing homelessness, right? With all the stigma 
that accompanies that. So imagining someone as your neighbor, as someone's son or daughter, I think that does make a difference. Second one is uh, connect, see. When you take time to connect, and it could be through a program like Miracle Messages, uh, we offer a phone buddy program where we have volunteers around the world who have committed 30 minutes a week to have one-to-one phone calls and text messages, kind of like a big brother's, big sister's program for our unhoused neighbors. So whether it's through a program like a phone buddy program, through visiting a soup kitchen, a local shelter, doing outreach, finding a way to connect with an unhoused neighbor as a neighbor, as not a problem to be solved, as a person to be loved. So I think to unite the experiences of what we hear from the people we meet to the broader systems that are broken around income inequality, what does it mean if you just are working as one out of every two unhoused individuals works who are based in shelters, has jobs, but still not enough to afford housing in the United States. You know, what does it mean if you've served a sentence in uh, a jail or prison and you've been released to the streets and because of your felony record, you cannot get a job, you cannot get housing, you're not eligible for federal benefits, but you've already been disconnected from your family. So I think getting close enough to the issue to get to know our unhoused neighbors and then connect the experiences that they may be going through with some of these wider issues and and then being able to advocate for them. So it stands for, I see you. And I think that's an easy way for folks to remember is is just the importance of seeing our neighbors as neighbors and, and starting there. We need to connect with people at a soup kitchen. Don't just ladle out food. Go and sit down with people and talk to them, get to know them. I agree with Kevin. You don't have to say hi to everybody who's on the street, but you know, think about it and maybe stop and say, hey, how you doing? How's your day been? And I've gotten to the point now where if I'm in a position to do so, I will at least wave at everybody who is panhandling at a corner. I may not stop and give them anything, but at least I recognize them and acknowledge their existence, which strikes me as being an important step for all of us. I want to add to something that Kevin said, because this is one of the real idiosyncrasies of our system, economic system. It's cheaper to do the right thing in terms of providing housing and services for people experiencing homelessness than not to do anything. Why aren't we doing it? And a lot of the reason for that is because we have such a negative feeling about those experiencing homelessness. We've got to change that. In the book, you couldn't lay out a more compelling argument for why it's critical for us to connect to one another and what impact all of our interpersonal relationships have on all of our well-being and the impact on our outcomes in life. And yet we're hesitant to provide the assistance to get people what they need when they need it. Why is that? What did you learn as you were writing this book about why that is? And of course, what do we do? In addition to the book, I've been involved in a project looking at nimbyism. And 
I come away from all of that with almost certainty that there is a natural xenophobia, fear of people who are different. And it's race, it's class, it's sexual orientation, it's gender, it's immigration status, and it's housing status. People who are different, we're afraid of for whatever reason. And we have to figure out how to shift some of those gears. There's neuroscientists at Princeton and Duke that found that the part of our brain that activates when we see a person compared to an inanimate object, that part of the brain has been found not to even respond when we see someone that we perceive to be in an extreme outgroup in our society. And that includes our neighbors experiencing homelessness. So even at a neurological level, we are processing our unhoused neighbors, not as neighbors, as, as problems. Uh, so there's really deep work that's needing to be done. You know, Don and I in the book, and I think just as people, we've really tried to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers. And in fact, we walk by. There's enough self-righteousness out there <laughs> on many issues. Homelessness, this isn't one where we need to perpetuate any kind of us versus them dichotomy. You know, we open up the solutions chapter with the time that we too walked by and where we treated an unhoused neighbor in a biased or derogatory or disrespectful way, not because we're proud of those moments, but because those are real human moments. So my hope is that readers of the book will not feel talked down to, not feel additionally frustrated, because truthfully, after doing this work for the last 10 years and seeing lives transformed through relatively simple interventions, like family reunifications, like a phone buddy program, like basic income, I actually feel more hopeful now than I did 10 years ago on this journey. I think a good question that really we need to ask ourselves honestly as we talk about homelessness is, would that work for us if we were experiencing homelessness? Would we be willing to be in an environment where you have to get in by a certain time, get out by 7 a.m., you can't bring your stuff, you can't bring your partner, you can't bring your pets, you're congregated with a rotating group of people who you don't know, who are all clumped together just because of their shared lack of housing. And so I do think there's a move to embrace a kind of yes and mindset when it comes to homelessness and stop fighting between this solution and that solution, there's no silver bullet to end homelessness. You have to start with housing, you have to start with relational poverty, and you have to address all these intersectional systems and humanity failings for us to actually have a, a fighting chance to see homelessness end in our lifetime. People ask me, can we end homelessness? And my response is, there will always be a few people who are without homes for a certain period of time. But we certainly can make it very brief. We can make it very, very unusual. And we can make sure that we provide them with the kinds of immediate transitional shelter that they need. If we can generate the political will that generates the kinds of resources that are needed, we could do much better than what we have already done in terms of all of the other subpopulations of people experiencing homelessness.
One thing we would add to that is you all really bring forward in this book is when we are able to connect and understand folks' experiences from the human lens, we can actually map onto that resources and supports that actually mirror those needs in a way that is effective. I totally agree that if we're centering the importance of relationships, reconnecting as people, I, I have no doubt that we'll come up with you know, solutions that, that really aren't just top down. I think we've talked on this program a lot about the systems that are broken. You know, person by person, you have to know someone's name. You have to know the situation, the story. If you have 600,000 people experiencing homelessness in the United States, there's 600,000 reasons why every night that person's on the streets. And until we get close enough to hear the specific context for that person and then work with them to connect them to resources, support programs that address their unique situation, we won't get on top of this issue. One of the many things that Kevin has taught me over the last several years is the wonderful phrase, everyone is someone's somebody. And if we can acknowledge that everybody is a father, is a mother, is a brother, sister, cousin, nephew, niece, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody is a human being. And if we can only remember that when we look at folks who are experiencing homelessness, yes, they are part of somebody's family. And we need to remember that. Thank you both. Before I turn it over to Leanne to just bring us out for today. Is there anything else you want to leave the listeners with as it pertains to the issue or the book? Probably once every couple months, I get a message from another friend or acquaintance that I'm connected with on social media. And the message usually goes something like this. Kevin, I read your work. I saw your recent video. I saw the announcement of your book launch. Congratulations. I've never shared this with you before. And I've never shared this with anyone, but I too experienced homelessness. Growing up with my mom, we had a tough time. In between jobs after college, I was an entrepreneur, I was a founder, and my first startup didn't go quite where we wanted it to. I didn't have much money. I had a falling out. And the messages always end with the same thing. Please don't tell anyone that I too experienced homelessness. And these are folks who, some of whom are now successful founders, leaders of tech startups. These are folks who are C-suite executives at Fortune 100 companies. And yet still, they're so embarrassed, ashamed, nervous about sharing this experience that they'd rather stay closeted to this experience of homelessness than to share it openly. And so I I think what we need to do is first, if there's listeners out there who've had an experience of homelessness or who have a friend or family member who's experienced homelessness, we desperately need to hear your stories. We desperately need you to speak if it's safe to do so, to share that I too experienced homelessness. Wherever you're at on this issue, sharing your why for why you care about this issue, why you care about this conversation, whether it's from personal experience, family, friend connections, or just because you're a good person and you're trying to do the right thing. I think that's really a critical first step 
in the narrative change and changing hearts and minds. That's what I would invite folks into is those kinds of courageous conversations. We have got to shift gears in our thinking so that we treat people with the kind of love and respect that they deserve. We hope you read the book. We hope you are as inspired by it as we have been. Thank you, Jonna and Leanne, for letting us jabber away about this very important issue. Thank you both for spending time with us today and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with our listeners. When We Walk By is foundational to understanding the complex issues of homelessness. We appreciate the person-first approach and the astute commentary on the intersectional web of homelessness. And we hope everyone will read this important book. Thank you both. The Elevated Denver Podcast is produced by Leanne Morrison, Myra Nagy, and Jonna Flood. Narration brought to you by me, Nathan Havey. Editing, sound design, and music are composed and provided by Jesse Boynton. Recording and production provided by the Olympic Recording Studio. If you found this episode interesting and would like to learn more about our work, please visit us at elevateddenver.co. And don't forget to let others in the community know about this podcast. It's going to take all of us to build an elevated Denver.